Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Our sermon lesson this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 1. As I mentioned earlier, that Peter might be the common person throughout all of our lessons this morning. In the first one, he preached on Pentecost. In the second one, Peter was there on the very first Easter. And here, thirdly, towards the end of Peter's life, Peter is writing to a group of Christians who were suffering a great deal. They were suffering persecution of all kinds, grief in their life for believing, and yet Peter writes them about the significance, the blessings, the plenty of promises that God gives them through Jesus' resurrection. This is First Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all of this, you greatly rejoice. But now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Hidden talents. Imagine you and I are hanging out, maybe a couple friends are there with us, and the conversation turns to some hidden talents that we have. Imagine we're having this conversation and I say to you, I can juggle 10 bowling pins at once. Now, as you hear me say that, you now have to evaluate that claim and decide, is that true or not? And when you evaluate that claim, or really any kind of truth claim, there's going to be two factors that you have to consider. The first one, we'll call it actual likelihood. You're going to have to step back and think, okay, what is the actual likelihood of whether or not this can happen or not? And in the case of me juggling 10 bowling pins at once, it's kind of unlikely. You might say, okay, Matt, all right, I'm going to need to see some proof. I'm going to need to see you actually do it. 
And I would say, okay. So I'd start picking up the 10 bowling pins and you'd be like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Let me come over and see if those are regulation weight, if those are real. You're gonna, you're gonna need to see a lot of proof for this one. But not just proof. The second factor that you're gonna have to see besides knowing the actual likelihood of this is what we'll call personal significance. Does it matter? Does it matter to you whether or not this event, this thing, is true or not? In other words, is there any personal consequence? Does it mean anything for you? Does it matter if I can juggle 10 bowling pins or not? Now, some of you might say, okay, Matt, we're going to need some, see some proof about this. But the majority of you, you're going to be like, okay, Matt, who cares? <laughs> you're not going to believe me. You're going to be like, okay, Matt, you can juggle 10 bowling pins. And while it might be cool that I can tell people, hey, my bastard can juggle 10 bowling pins, I'm not going to do that. So there's no significance here. It's, it's not going to change my life at all. And I hate to tell you, but Matt, I, I don't care if you can actually do that or not. Likelihood and significance. These are the two factors that we have to weigh when we consider whether or not a claim is true. Now, you know that the event, the truth claim that we're talking about this morning is not my hidden talents. No, the truth claim that we're looking at this morning is the claim about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're going to look at likelihood. What is the likelihood that the claim that Christians have made for over 2,000 years, that Jesus Christ has actually risen from the dead, what is the likelihood that that is actually true? I mean, you know from your own experience that it is highly unlikely that someone would just come back from the dead. So this morning, we're going to look at the gospel account that we actually read last week on Easter. We're going to look at the gospel account that we read about Thomas and the disciples today. And we're going to also look at 1 Corinthians 15, which we read last week, that shows what the likelihood is of whether or not this actually happened. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing we're going to look at in our sermon this morning is the personal significance. I mean, when weighing this out, you got to think about, is there any personal significance? Does it matter if Jesus Christ rose from the dead? In other words, for you, are there any consequences if it's true and you don't believe it? If it's true or you choose to live like there's no significance? Are there any blessed consequences if this is true and you do believe it? Does it matter? Does it change anything in your life? We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the likelihood and the significance. So let's get into it. Uh, first, before we dive into the uh, likelihood, maybe a little bit of a preface or a disclaimer, if you will. What we're getting into here is an area of Christian study called apologetics. Have you ever heard of that before? What is apologetics? It is a defense of the gospel. That's classically how it's defined. And yet, what kind of idea does that put in our minds? Well, defensiveness, and in a world that is often very polarized, maybe that's not the best way to understand what apologetics are. What is apologetics? It's nothing but a logical reply 
to or against claims made against the gospel and Christianity. That's what apologetics is, and I would maybe add that it's done in a not defensive way. It's done in a kind, empathetic, winsome way. Now, I'm giving you this preface, this this disclaimer, if you will, because normally we don't talk about apologetics in church, in sermons. And maybe you could make the case that we could or we should, but the reason we don't very often is because apologetics, well, it's not gospel proclamation. And that's what we do here in sermons and on Sundays. We proclaim the gospel. What is apologetics? It is rational information. Yes, it's about the gospel, but it's not the gospel. So maybe here's another layer or way to think of apologetics. It has a purpose. It has a goal. It is so that we might be able to share the gospel. And so maybe you are a skeptic of the resurrection and the truth claims that Christianity have made. Maybe you're not. Maybe your whole life you have just believed it because I believe it. And yet, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, there was wisdom in knowing, knowing the proof, if you will, the likelihood, if you will, of the resurrection. I mentioned it before. We're going to go through Matthew's gospel, John's gospel, and a section of 1 Corinthians to unpack just four proofs to help us understand the likelihood of this resurrection, okay? Here's the first. It is this, that women were the first witnesses, You might say, what does that have to do with the idea of proving if this is likely or unlikely? Well, consider this. In Jesus' day, the first century, is a very sexist culture. Women did not have the standing that they do today. In fact, unfortunately, they were treated with a much lower standing than the other gender, males, so much so that in the court of law, you could not even be a witness. No one would accept a woman's testimony. I don't like that. I don't like that that was the case, but I do like that this is in the Bible. The women were the very first witnesses. Matthew 28, we read this last week. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the very first day of the week, who comes to the tomb? It's two women, Mary and Mary. What happens? Jesus appears to them first, and they go, and Jesus says, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go into Galilee. There, they will see me. And while the women were on their way, they went. Think about this. Women were the very first witnesses recorded in all four Gospels and throughout Scripture, very first people to see Jesus. They were the witnesses. You say, what does this prove in terms of likelihood of the resurrection? Well, I would put this before you. Would you ever, in a million years, ask women, if that was the culture and they were, their testimony was not believed, would you stake their witness and their claim and their testimony on their account? You wouldn't. You wouldn't ever, and yet that is what Scripture does clearly, unapologetically, and it, in fact, flaunts it throughout the Bible. That's the first one. Here's the second one. There wasn't just women. There were hundreds of other witnesses. As we're determining the likelihood of this, we might listen to two women and say, okay, 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 you you went to the wrong tomb. Or maybe because of grief and all of the trauma of your loved one dying, and not seeing them there, you saw something. But it wasn't just two. 
Scripture claims that it was hundreds of adult people who saw Jesus rise from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writing says, what I received, I passed on to you. I'm telling you, first, that Christ died for our sins, according to his scriptures. Second, he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Third, he appeared to Cephas, or Peter, and the other 12. And he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. Side note, James is Jesus' brother, and James doubted the resurrection, but Jesus appeared to him. And then he appeared to me, Paul writes. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. Here is one who crucified the Christian church, pursued them and persecuted them, Paul, and yet Jesus appeared to him. And what is he saying? Paul is writing this just 20 to 30 years, somewhere in there after Jesus' resurrection. He's saying, look, there are some satient, mature adults who are alive and well, who are living and breathing, and you can go ask them that they saw Jesus why would Paul write that? Why would Paul write that to other Christians who notably didn't see Jesus if it weren't true? Here's the third one. The guards were notorious false witnesses. Now, this is just a few verses after what we read last week in Matthew chapter 28. That the, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city, guards who were, who were posted to stand there at the tomb. They went there and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. You say, what does it prove in terms of likelihood? The fact that there are some soldiers who were recorded to have made up a story? Two things. First, it proves that even the opponents of Jesus, they admitted it. The tomb was empty. They admitted that much, that Jesus was here, now he's not. And second, they made up a plausible story, a believable story to cover it up. And if you're Matthew, or let's put it this way, if you're hired to be a propaganda professional on behalf of the early Christian church, would you ever go about creating a believable, plausible story that stood in difference your story in order to just throw people off. Never. Here's the final piece of evidence, you will. Just one word, Thomas. You read John chapter 20 before. Thomas said he would not believe unless he saw Jesus. And a week later, fast forward, the disciples were in the house again. Thomas was there this time, and Jesus came. And he repeats the same message. Peace be with you. And then he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And you want to know what Thomas did? He did. 
He said, my Lord and my God. He gave this beautiful, simple confession. And what did Thomas go on to do? What we know from history is that Thomas did go on to believe, confess that he believed, share with people that he believed and saw the risen Savior, so much so that he died for it. Now, we're just doing a brief survey of some apologetic proofs here. If you're interested in this more, Lee Strobel wrote a book called The Case for Christ. And in that book, he said this concerning the apostles. He said, the apostles were willing to die for something that they had seen with their own eyes and touched with their own hands. They were in a unique position, not just to believe Jesus rose from the dead, but to know for sure. And when you have 11 credible people with no ulterior motives, who have nothing to gain and nothing to lose, who all agree they observed something with their own eyes, now you've got some difficulty explaining that away. Maybe you never thought about the resurrection in this way, but you've just always believed it. Maybe you've thought about the resurrection and you've been skeptical of it for some time in your life. You may look at this evidence and say, ah, still, I'm going to need to see more. And yet, with this evidence, just, just four pieces throughout the gospel, and much more throughout history, much more that people have looked at and compiled in terms of this, is this much is true. The unlikely seems quite likely. In fact, so much so that even people who are not Christian have stepped back and looked at this and said, there is more of a reason to accept the claims of Christianity than to reject the truth claims of Christianity. There is more reason to accept this as likely than unlikely. But we're not just talking about reason this morning. It seems likely from Scripture, from the overwhelming historical evidence that it was likely that Jesus, quite likely, that Jesus rose from the dead. But is there any significance if he did or if he didn't? Well, what we're going to do for the rest of our time this morning is walk through 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's what you have in 1 Peter. You have Peter writing at the end of his life to a group of Christians about the resurrection and the significance that it has for people's lives. This is Peter who, on the very first Easter, heard the witness and the testimony from the women, and you want to know what he said? Unlikely. In fact, in Luke's gospel, he says, that is nonsense. He says, you are speaking crazy talk, ladies. You have Peter here at the end of his life talking about his change of heart, the fact that he saw him and believed. And you might doubt the likelihood, but you cannot doubt the significance of this. You have Peter, an untrained, uneducated fisherman, writing in eloquent terms, the benefits, the significance, the blessings of the resurrection. Here's the cool thing. He does it in just 183 words, verses three through nine. And in, in that short amount of time, he lists no less than 10 points of significance for you, for your life. Does it matter or not? Does it change anything for me? Just 10 points of significance. And we're gonna walk through all of them briefly. And in doing so, here's my hope. 
that the Holy Spirit overwhelms you with the wonderful significance of Jesus' resurrection. Put it up all on the screen at once. If you have it opened in your worship guides, maybe you can see it a little bit easier. But here's how it begins. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great, first one, mercy. He's given you mercy. What we know from Scripture, what we know about ourselves is this. We stand as people who do wrong, who offend God by our evil, by our sin. And you can feel it. You can feel it as you look out into other world religions, as you look into your own heart. That is a fearful place to be, to know that, that you have offended your maker. And yet what is the benefit, the significance of the resurrection? It's that you have received mercy. Christopher Powers is an artist whom, whose artwork I really enjoy. And what he depicts is this, that on the cross, Christ Jesus took all of the wrath, all of the anger, all of the punishment, all of the fires of hell for you. So you and I stand before the cross looking at it. And what we see is that we have mercy. What is mercy? It is not getting what you deserve. What we deserve is God's wrath and anger. What we receive is not that. What we receive is God's mercy. That's the first point. Here's the second one. And he has given us new birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus and his disciples, he says, you can't get to heaven unless you are born again. What we read throughout scripture is that through the waters of your baptism, you are inextricably linked to Christ in his death and his resurrection. In his death, your old Adam has been drowned. Your old sinful self, the natures, the desires of your heart, that's been done away with. And there is a new you. You have been given a new birth, a new identity. You have been adopted into God's family. And that means that you also have a living hope. Let's talk about hope. Hope is a often used word. We talk about having maybe, let's call it like secular hope, that I hope there's not traffic on my way home, that I hope my team wins the championship. That's not the hope we're talking about. We also talk about hope in a much more transcendent sense, that every world religion holds out hope for people. And we talk about how hope really is a powerful motivator, that people who have been prisoners of war have told, told harrowing accounts of holding on to hope, of, of seeing family, of seeing friends, of, of, of winning the war and making it home. And, and that transcendent hope has really changed the outcome of their lives. But that's not what we're, we're talking about. What we're talking about is a different kind of hope entirely. This is a living hope. It is a living hope because it is anchored in someone who did something and is now alive. The hope is anchored in Christ Jesus, who is not a God of the dead, but is the God of the living, and who has taken your hopes for future forgiveness, for future life, and he has taken that hope and he has placed it firmly in him, with him, in heaven. And he says that through the resurrection, you have been given not only mercy, not only a new life, but you have been given a living hope. I'll show you one more picture from Christopher Powers. It's a picture of someone lying on their back. Obviously, you're evidently needing medical attention. 
And here, in the darkest of moments, maybe on the precipice of death, Christ holds back the flames of hopelessness, holds back the fire of despair, and shines the light of living hope onto you and me. So whether it is death or whether it is sickness, whether it is depression or just despair in general, what we have in the cross is cooling shades from the fires that look to steal us from our hope. And because of that, we have an inheritance into heaven that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This week is tax day. And let's imagine that you received an inheritance from your rich uncle in the last year. You know that would get taken a little bit. That would get taxed. And you also know that you could use that up and it would ultimately disappear. But what does God's word say? You have an inheritance of heaven that can never fade, can never be taken, can never be spoiled or perish in any way. And that is the hope. That is the certain hope, the living hope of life in heaven. And not only that, in between that time, you are, through faith, shielded by God's power. That means no matter what you go through in life, you have a shield in front of you that is God's power. It is an invisible force field protecting you. Last picture. Last picture from Christopher Powers. It's a picture of a young lady being held in the embrace of her God. And what is hitting his back? It's flaming arrows. It is fire coming. And what happens? It does not touch her. You can go up to the Smithsonian Museum and you can see the landing craft that the Apollo mission took in from outer space to land safely back to Earth. You can go look on the heat shield in front of it and see how it's been charred, how debris and even really small molecules penetrated that shield and, and put dents in it. And yet the astronauts made it home safely. You have that in much greater power than a spacecraft. You have the power of God shielding you from every fiery arrow of temptation, of despair, of sadness, of sickness, or fear, protecting you so that through this life, you know that you might feel the flames sometimes, but they cannot and they will not touch you. You have an inheritance kept for you in heaven. You are shielded by God's power. And in all of this, you can greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer all kinds of trials. Here's the thing that I appreciate about Peter. He doesn't diminish real life. He says, you have all of these things. It's very significant, but that doesn't change the fact you're going to go through some stuff. All kinds. All kinds. And yet, in the midst of that, you can greatly rejoice. This is why we've been talking about the fire, because in this next one, he says, the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. This is your faith. This is what you have. This is the significance of Christ's resurrection from the dead, that you're going to go through some stuff, just like gold goes through fire, and yet it's going to make you stronger. You are going to be refined through this. You're going to carry crosses, but crosses which are meant to lay people into the ground in death. No, not for you. 
They're going to raise you up with Christ Jesus, whom you're linked with through your baptism. This new life is yours. And if you ever wonder if your faith is legit or not, ask yourself this, what is my faith in? It is in Christ. It is in him and his resurrection. And it's proven. It's proven genuine, not through me or how hard or how little I believe, but it's proven through the fiery trials we go through from life, and we see all of the ways, the significance that Christ upholds us, protects us. And that means that even if we go through it, that you don't see him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Here's Peter quoting what he preached on at the very first Pentecost. Here's him reflecting on Jesus' quote on that very first Easter. You have peace. You don't see him, but he said you're blessed. You don't have him now, but you love him. You have a gift that he's given you, and it's faith in him. And it fills you with something that is not happiness. No, resurrection living, Easter living is not all pastels and, you know, pretty rose-colored, rose-tinted life. No, it's, it's fiery trials. And yet, in the midst of that, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. This is not just happiness. This is not just good times, jolly and joy. This is an inexpressible joy that this world outside of Christ cannot know, and you have it, and you have it. Why? Here's the 10th and final one. It's because you don't have to wait for your salvation. You don't have to wait and hope, ooh, someday I'm gonna get the blessings and see the significance of this. No, it says this, that right now, right now, you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Here's why. For you are presently receiving that end result of your faith. The salvation of your goals, the salvation of your souls. Right now, you are receiving the end result. It doesn't matter if you are in the beginning, middle of end of your faith life or your actual life. You are already now receiving the end result. It is the salvation of your souls. What's the significance if you don't believe this, is that you miss all this. What is the blessed consequence that Christ has given you if you do? Let's read it again. No less than 10 things. In his great mercy, he has given you new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, by the way, until then, you are shielded by God's power through faith until the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this... You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds. Thieves have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by a fire, may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. But you don't have to wait till he's revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You can doubt the likelihood of the resurrection if you want to. 
it would be intellectually dishonest. But one thing you cannot doubt is the significance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the significance that he has given to you through faith in him. You've heard the phrase, the proof is in the pudding. You know that comes from, right? It comes from like a longer time ago when people would make pudding and you, you couldn't know about like if it was done or not until you ate it. Actually, the saying is the proof of the pudding is in the eating. That's the original phrase. You know, scripture says something just like that. In Psalm 34, the psalmist David records this. He records the very plentiful promises that Jesus already gave in the New Testament, also gave, excuse me. He said, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear them. He delivers them. He said, Christ is your shield. At the end of the psalm, he said that the righteous person may have many troubles. You know this. You may have had to suffer all kinds of grief. Although you do, the Lord delivers you, the righteous person, from all them. And then in the middle of the psalm, where the psalmist, the poets, would emphasize the key idea, he said this, taste and see. Try it. The proof's in the pudding. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Experience it. Just experience for a moment. You can hear someone talk about mercy, but experience it. Experience guilt, and you know that feeling where you've done something wrong, but experience this, knowing that all your guilt, all the punishment for wrongdoing, it's gone. Experience that mercy. The proof's in the pudding. Experience that for a moment. The feeling of hopelessness, of being laid onto your back and knowing that you know, there's no, nowhere else down you can go, and yet look up and see the living hope that you have in the cross of Christ and in his empty tomb. You can hear someone talk about how God you know, is, a, is a warrior who encamps around you and shields you, but feel that. Experience that. The temptations to despair, the temptation to give up, the temptation to give in to that thing again or again, and feel that experience, the power of God that protects you from all of that. On one hand, yeah, the proof's in the pudding, but on the other hand, it's not hidden. The mystery of the resurrection is not hidden from you. Christ Jesus lives. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And he lives to give you proof. He lives to give you plenty of promises of the significance of that. Before I end, I should probably tell you, you should know, I cannot juggle 10 bowling pins at once. Sorry to disappoint some of you. But here's what you can know. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia.